Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Monday, March the 30th. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. We're back after taking a pause for the weekend, so there's a fair bit to catch up on, both in the news, but also from the weird world of lockdown New Zealand. If you've only just discovered this podcast, Coronavirus NZ, here's how it works. Each weekday, we're going to take a look at the day's news, mainly from a New Zealand angle. And then we're going to zoom in for a closer look at some story connected to the COVID-19 crisis. New episodes will drop around about five o'clock, internet speed permitting. So Eugene and I are both journalists with Stuff. Uh, Of course, we're both working from home in our respective Auckland suburbs. Yeah, and can we all agree that that was the weirdest weekend in living memory, right? People on the front line, healthcare workers and emergency services, they were bracing for a wave of COVID-19 cases. Supermarket workers around the country are also taking their place up in the universe of superheroes. They're coping brilliantly with lots of stress and worry and busyness. On the home front, I discovered that when you're doing a FaceTime group chat, it's possible to replace your own head with that of a dinosaur. Who knew? And I discovered that a virtual yoga downward dog is much harder than it looks. Later, we've got a chat with Stuff reporter Steve Kilgallen about the nuts and bolts of contact tracing. But first, Eugene... What's happened today? Well, it's not just today, Adam. We've got three days of news to catch up on. So briefly, there are 76 new cases in the last 24 hours, which added to the weekend increases takes New Zealand to 589 cases in total. 63 people have recovered, but 12 are in hospital with two in intensive care. There's a new coronavirus cluster, this one in Matamata. There are 23 confirmed cases in the town, with many connected to a St. Patrick's Day celebration at the local Redoubt bar. Some snapshots from overseas. The global death toll is almost 30,000. Moscow is in shutdown, so is India. Syria has had its first death. And things continue to get increasingly serious in the US. New York state alone had 237 deaths in one day. And of course, on Sunday, it was announced that New Zealand had its first coronavirus death. A woman in her 70s died in Grey Base Hospital, Greymouth. Joanne Carroll is a staff reporter based on the West Coast and has been reporting on the case. Joanne, you've spoken to the family. What do they say? They're obviously uh, devastated by the um, the death of, of their mum and, and beloved grandmother and also being you know thrust into this as being the, you know, the first coronavirus related death um it, it's yeah it's, it's just come as such a shock how long was she sick for um yeah so they've told me that she became ill on saturday the 21st of march and um, so the saturday before last and um, she had cold like symptoms and then the next day she developed um, gastro type symptoms and um, diarrhea and her family visited her at that stage but uh, she deteriorated until Wednesday, but she never had a cough. Um, So she didn't have the cough symptom, but she had the fever and aches all over. And so went to the hospital on Wednesday. The family members I spoke to believed she was tested on the same day, but when she first presented to the hospital, the staff didn't treat her as having a a possible um, coronavirus. And so they used the personal protective equipment for flu rather than coronavirus. So they didn't use the ma- the, the eye masks. Right. And that's right. why the staff now have uh, gone, 21 of them have now been in isolation. Do we know how she contracted the virus? They have really have no idea, um, which is a real worry. And the community, I think, is 
reeling from this news that she didn't have any link to travel or uh, a confirmed case. Ashley Bloomfield has said there is a possible link to travel, but the family members I spoke to said they didn't believe so. Her son had returned from Australia some five weeks ago. So didn't they don't believe that that was any link. They're just at a loss, really. They don't know how she, she would have picked it up. What about tourists? I mean, what sort of, did she keep to herself or was she working? Or, you know, is there any chance that she came in contact with tourists? It's a, Yes, know. well, they said, and, and this is speculation, um, like in the week before she became sick, she went to the chiropractor at the supermarket, chatting to neighbours. Um, the, the supermarket that she usually went to is right beside the Greymouth train station. And, and and they have car rentals and there's the warehouse and, you know, so it's a, quite a bustling spot of Greymouth where there's a lot of tourists milling around. And the Transalpine train, which comes to Greymouth, didn't stop until the 24th of March. Mm-hmm. So potentially, and, and, you know, the West Coast is such a thoroughfare of tourists, it's on the drag of tourism. What's been the impact on the community? Yeah, I think it is a big shock, you know, thinking that this, the virus is here and we didn't know about it. And there's such a lag between the cases getting, you know, tested and being released by the ministry. So I guess everyone in town is trying to to piece together their own movements. And, you know, it must be like having something stalking the town. I know. And it's, I mean, I kind of felt like that anyway. Like, you know, with my own family, we just basically decided to go into lockdown even before we were asked to, you know, we were watching, I'm obviously from my accent, you can tell I'm from Ireland. We were watching what was seeing, happening over there. And we just, as soon as there was a confirmed case in New Zealand, we kind of said, this is coming. My mother in her seventies went into isolation. And so it's kind of confirmed what I was fearing that this is in the community and we don't know, or there's a time lag between when we find out. And, you know, it is a very scary time. Thank you very much for joining us, Joanne. Thank you. Things are not perfect in New Zealand by any stretch, but catch any news and you know that overseas, for many countries, it's extremely dire. You know, Spain has had its highest number of deaths in a day, 838. Italy's death toll has topped 10,000, though the rate of deaths is slowing, which offers some hope in that regard anyway. In the United States, the leading infectious diseases expert has predicted as many as 200,000 Americans could die of coronavirus. Britain too suffers, but like I said the other day, it's often one small thing which brings things home for you, doesn't it? A 108-year-old who contracted and survived the Spanish flu in 1918 has died of coronavirus at her rest home near Manchester. You know, coronavirus don't care who you are, where you live. So Adam... We've had a couple of days of not being in a Google Hangout all day. How have you been? Well, oddly, considering that we're social distancing, that uh, we're you know not leaving our houses pretty much, I had a, a strangely social weekend. I think um, there's a st- general excitement about trying new new ways of doing things. On Friday night, I had a virt- virtual drinking session with um, the guys who I would normally have met on Sunday morning for a run. You know, the whole country's sort of trying out, the, doing a, a technical stress test for all these different platforms. Zoom's okay, but it's, you know, it's a little bit businessy. Um, FaceTime, we settled on because we, we all had iPhones. And um, I think FaceTime might be the most fun because I discovered that if you go down to the bottom and hit a series of buttons, you can replace your own head with that of a dinosaur. Or indeed a monkey or an alien. And 
numerous other things which I found um, inexplicably fun. Brought, brought to you by the man who found the Golden Gate Bridge on Zoom, dinosaur heads for FaceTime. There you go. We're interneting more than we have before, haven't we? You know, Chorus Network peaked at 3.03 terabits per second uh, on Friday, which was up 34% from normal use. So there you go. It's a fact. Saturday morning, um, I zoomed in with my sister, sat in the garden. In fact, this was actually a technical test because we were we were planning ahead for for a, a meetup on Sunday morning. But because, uh, frankly, my sisters are just as talkative as me, uh, between us we ended up talking about nothing for about an hour. And then on Saturday evening, we had cheese and crackers with some friends. They had their cheese and crackers. We had our cheese and crackers. We got on Zoom. Discovered you can play each other videos through Zoom, which is a bit exciting. Played some Yes Minister clips. I'm going to dig that out, actually. I think we should hear it. And um, and then Sunday morning, the big event, a Dudding Extended Family yoga session, because my sister Ruth is a yoga instructor and she was sort of using us to test drive her online Zoom yoga classes. So we all sat in our respective living rooms. I think the furthest afield was Hawke's Bay and did, you know, uh, what are they called? Downward dogs and salutes to the sun and stuff like that. And I discovered that actually my lower back doesn't really like yoga. The family that yogas together. There was a lot of people doing exercises that they hadn't done before and then regretting it, you know, trying workouts that somebody or other had posted online and said, try this, and then they do it, and then they limp around the house the next few days. I'm notoriously inflexible. Is that the word? I have no flexibility in my legs especially. I can't touch my toes, can barely touch my knees. But I tried after years of putting it off, a bit of runner's yoga. Mm-hmm. You learn a lot about yourself, don't you? I've got an email from Les Mills saying they put all their on-demand stuff online. I believe they put some of their stuff onto TVNZ as they well. Have. So the whole the whole country is going to be balancing their bodies together. The Probably the most scarring experience I had, so I'd let my daughter use my iPad quite a lot, and she's been house-partying. So that's the same as Zoom, but just with brighter colours. And the ability for people to barge in on each other's conversations, which I guess that's what makes it a house party. And so I was trying to do something on my iPad, and every five seconds there are these bloody notifications coming at the top saying, um, house party notification, da, da, da. Eventually I clicked on one to try and get rid of them, and suddenly the screen opened, and I was found myself in the middle of a chat with a bunch of uh, teenage girls, which is really not what I wanted to be doing at, at 9.30pm on a Saturday night. So I was sort of panickingly running around saying, I'm Eliza's dad, I'm turning it off now. And um, my son was literally lying on the floor laughing because not because what I was doing was funny, because he knew how very angry my daughter was going to be when she discovered that I had... You basically walked into the lounge of a teenage party. Exactly, exactly. uh, Yeah, she'd be horrified. House party just took off, didn't it? It went from zero to 100 very quickly. Yeah, I'm going to say that you arriving in the middle of a house party like that is probably the beginning of the end for house party. Uh, people are finding different ways to socialise, really, aren't they? And offline as well. Um, Todd Nile, who's one of our staff colleagues and who lives in sort of semi, I guess you'd call it semi-rural West Auckland, he wrote a really lovely piece about the streets around him where everyone usually drives everywhere um, because you have to drive to get to the shops or whatever. And with the roads quieter and safer, people took to walking on the weekend and were interacting in ways that they hadn't done before. 
it's that social distancing creating social connection. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering, uh, are, are New Zealanders of the right character to, to start doing that Spanish thing that uh, whatever time of day they'll come out at 7pm or something with the pots and pans and bang them for five minutes for reasons I haven't fully established? Doesn't feel very Kiwi. I don't know. Maybe, you know, we're discovering new facets of ourselves. We are, we are. Today in our regular Famous People Infection News, Boris Johnson. UK Prime Minister has got it. But since that broke on Friday night, in fact, it was just a few hours after our podcast came out, we felt, you know, we really had to bring you an extra couple of cases. So Rand Paul, the Republican from Kentucky, has got it. He's the first US Senator to test positive for coronavirus. And Matthew Hancock has got it. And he is? Well, is he a famous person? In the UK, he's kind of famous. He is the health secretary. There we go. How's the play- playlist going today, Adam? The plague playlist is going stink, to be honest. I um, <laughs> I haven't set aside the time I normally would to Google people's lists of, of the best music to be playing. Well, I did send you a clip over the weekend about instructional song about staying at home, but we didn't have enough bleeps to put in there. Otherwise, it would have just rendered it a bleep fest, wouldn't it? Well, if we get sufficiently desperate, we can, we can haul we it can out later. It. But in the meantime, I have this. Uh, what, what is that? What? Well, it's a kookaburra, of course, but actually it's Sam Neill. It's part of a longer little video that he posted on Twitter where he said things like this. Well, how are you? Look, I know it's really desolate being isolated, but it's so important at this time. And Man of the moment, really, Sam Neill. We're all alone together, and it's very important. He's the kind of calming solace we need in these times. Oh, hey, and I found that Yes Minister clip that I was talking about earlier. Um, just to be clear, this is doing the rounds because it turns out to be this rather prescient commentary on the way that Boris Johnson and his crew seem to be handling the UK coronavirus crisis. In stage one, we say nothing is going to happen. Stage two, we say something may be going to happen, but we should do nothing about it. In stage three, we say that maybe we should do something about it, but there's nothing we can do. <laughs> stage four, we say maybe there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. We've all had to learn a new virus vocabulary in the last few weeks. There's the bubble, community transmission, baby zoomers, of course, and then there's uh, contact tracing. So like the rest of them, it's a phrase we kind of understand, but not in a lot of detail. Um, Stuff National Correspondent Steve Kilgallen spoke to some experts about contact tracing. So Steve, the Ministry of Health calls me up and says, Adam, you've got a positive result. We need to do some contact tracing. What happens next? The the basic principle we probably all understand, but how, how does it actually work and what's the reason behind it? Um, so the guy I rang wasn't an obvious choice, but he seems to know a lot about a lot of things. Um, he's a physicist at Auckland University called Sean Hendy. And he understood contact tracing really well because he'd worked with the government when they had the M. bovis outbreak among cattle, which was a sort of a virus that's still afflicting cattle, but they've, they've pretty much contained it. Um, and as he said, while well, you can't interview a cow, you can interview a farmer about the cow's movement. So the principles essentially were the same for M. bovis and to a, a probably a slightly lesser extent, the um, Queensland fruit fly outbreaks, which if you lived in Grey Lynn five years ago or like myself, uh, sunny Northcote Point in the last year and a half, you'd remember fondly for all the um, primary industries employees running through your garden, standing on your fruit trees. 
So that's where it started. It started with Sean Hendy, and he sort of explained how it works. And basically how it works is if you get coronavirus or you're exposed to it, a Ministry of Health official will come and sit with you and exhaustively interview you about your movements in the previous 14 days. And he was saying to me that there's, there's a shortage of people who can do this. And I think the ministry have been intensively training people. It doesn't have to be a doctor. Um, but you do have to have some um, bedside skills, as it were, because you're talking to quite stressed people and trying to pin them down to all their exact movements. And that was the genesis of the restrictions way back millions of years ago when we um, cut down group gatherings to 500 and then 100. Um, he said one of the reasons for that was simply that it's a lot easier to trace the contact of 100 people versus several thousand at a Warriors game or, or a concert, as we saw with the guy who got infected at the Tour concert way, way back in the past. Why don't officials just name the infected people um, publicly so that all their contacts you know, know who they are and can put their hands up for the test and, and we, we know everyone knows exactly what's going on. Yeah, I was thinking about that and I, I thought that would be much easier. And he pointed out to, if you remember, actually, I think it was the or maybe the fifth or sixth case we had here. It was a family on the North Shore um, of Auckland who were getting absolutely hammered on social media and I actually saw some quite rude letters about them <laughs> lying around. Um, so I think if you get named, then um, the great... New Zealand public would be out there vilifying you, I think, was the theory. So instead you see these quite vague calls out saying, you know, were you at Newmarket train station at half past nine on the 12th of March or whatever? And that's the way they do it. Uh, and you can see why. What about, I mean, I can barely remember what I did yesterday uh, at the best of times. So it must be quite a process to try and retrace your steps over 14 days. I mean, how, what, what sort of, do they have to get down to really granular detail, do you know? Yeah, I've always thought about that. You know, when you see when you see uh, Police 107 or whatever, and it's like, were you in this dairy on the 12th of yeah. whatever? And and <laughs> I genuinely wouldn't be able to tell you most. I can tell you what I've been doing the last few days because it's been the same, same, same. But generally, couldn't tell you where I've been or who I've seen. But yeah, I think that's where the difference between close and casual contacts comes in, according to, to Sean Hendy. And the initial definition of that was around a two-hour time period in an enclosed space so a plane flight a bus journey a train journey a meeting so i guess if you think about your life in that sort of context and you probably could remember were you at the pub last friday for a couple of hours with your mates yes you were you could probably remember who was with you mm. um so i think once when it's kept to that sort of close contact thing then it probably is reasonably easy to reconstruct and the feeling is that the casual contact which is someone you see at a distance or for a very short period of time is much less likely to have got infected. Mm. But it's interesting seeing with that Hereford Cattle Conference, when you get a large group, to go back to Hendy's other point, um, how hard it must be to draw all those close contacts out when you've got hundreds of people who've then moved all around the country. Well, there was the, the tour concert too, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. And they only seemed to get one other case on that, which I guess was kind of quite lucky because how you'd have tracked all those ticket holders. And he, he pointed out to an outbreak in South Korea, a church meeting where I assume it was one of those revivalist type ones where people are all moving around and being healed, etc. And it, it's also to do with the, the movement of the crowd. So if you're, I guess if you're a seated, ticketed event, or like a plane journey where they say two rows either, either way, that's going to be easier than, than something where the crowd is moving around and your contacts are less easy to predict or, or measure. So we're getting quite a few of those clusters now. There's the there's the Hereford 
cattle conference in, in Queenstown, but there's so there's staff at Hamilton Rest Home. That sounds like um, that one started with the, the daughter of a resident who was visiting from Australia. Uh, there's a cluster at a Wellington wedding. There's Marist College in Auckland. Um, one of the cases which is looking pretty epic to me in the Hawke's Bay, there's the Ruby Princess cruise ship that came on the 15th of March, 3,500 people on board, including people who've had the virus. They've had one death since from people who are on that, though that's not a New Zealand case per se. Um, but So one of those people evidently visited an Napier rest home, so they, they started testing the residents there and so on. Stuff's Marty Sharp talked to one local tour guide who took passengers you know, around the sites, and she said to him, I took that group to so many places. So... I mean, the, the contact tracing there must must be must be epic. It's it, it's sort of the virus is exponential, and so the contact tracing has to be as well. Yeah, and I guess that's why we're all sitting at home, isn't it? If if, uh, if your movements for fourteen days are limited to walking around the park and back, they're not going to have to do a lot of contact tracing, are they? But yeah, cases like that must be the worst to deal with. You'd imagine. Oh, Steve, a mate of mine who I was talking to. Um, thanks, Peter. He he was he had a bit of an idea. He thought now that we are in isolation. Why don't we, all, you know, in early early days of isolation, why don't we all keep a diary of exactly who we have contact with in the next few days in terms of, well, exactly what's happening, you know, shopping and stuff and exactly what we're doing so that if somebody in our bubble gets, you know, turns out is positive with coronavirus, it's really easy for people to track. Well, great minds think alike. Yeah, that's Handy said that to me. He said if there was one thing we could all do, to um, ease pressure on the system and save time is to do one of those. And then if we do get it, then we can just hand that diary over and we've short-circuited, um, yeah, a huge amount of the process. Right. While we've been talking, I've just been watching out of my window as one neighbour has walked to another neighbour's house and left some cooking on the bottom step. And the other neighbour's come out and reached and got it and then they've walked away. Isn't that beautiful? Sorry. As you were. <laughs> were they wearing masks? <laughs> no, but they did. They kept the two. They kept the two meters. It was lovely. She walked around. There's a there's a a series of eight units that wrap around my house, and number eight just walked all the way around the corner to number three and stood at the bottom of the steps and called up. And number three leaned over the fence, and it was beautiful. Oh, that's really nice. <laughs> that is very cool. And I'm thinking in terms of transmission. Yeah, if there is some transmission, I'll be able to tell the contact <laughs> traces that that, that um, chicken pie from number eight has infected number three. Or, or what else? <laughs> yes, well, you have your own diary and you need your diary. <laughs> but, but, but I was also thinking that actually that seems pretty safe because a piece of baking, if it's come out of the oven piping hot, the virus sure as hell ain't going to survive um, 180 degrees in, in your shack lock oven. But by the same token, you need to um, watch out for burns if you're wandering around with 180 degree <laughs> baking things, Adam. I can't swear if it was hot or not. I am watching this through through a window but um great on the spot reporting it's well done <laughs> hey the, the the first cases were from people overseas but we are seeing these community transmissions now is there just a point where we should just give up uh you know they, and they won't bother contact tracing or does it always remain valuable so sean's point of view was that it was at its most valuable in in the pre-community transmission stage he called it our biggest weapon and then he said yeah there's a, there's a sort of a declining value over time and he said that at that point you, you there's sort of variations you can use he talked about how the some of the asian countries are perhaps slightly less um into civil liberties than we are 
you know, using mobile phone data to, to track people's movements much more intensely. And he said, but there's variations of that. He said when the fruit fly um, epidemic was going on in Grey Lynn, that there was some use of mobile phone data in a, in a more generalised pattern setting to sort of see the trends of movements in and out of the suburbs so the testers could work out where they might need to go and test to see if it had gone further than Grey Lynn. Um, so he said there's some value in some stuff like that around general movement patterns. As, as it spreads wider. But yeah, I guess there's a point where if we've all got it, then well, how are they going to contact trace it? Yeah. Um, Steve Kilgallen, thank you very much. I hope you are enjoying as best you can uh, your bubble isolation in, as you say, sunny North Coast. Finding absolutely awful, but talking to you guys is a nice break from the monotony. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Monday the 30th of March. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Joanne Carroll, Steve Cook-Allen, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. We're on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz and at all the podcast apps, so go subscribe. We have a shiny new email address. You can drop us a line, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Adios. Adios.